I've told you before how much I like Blasoma's Glow Face Mask. That really fabulous powdered mask that has turmeric and amino acids and just feels so nice and clearing on the skin. But today I want to tell you about their Mild Rice Cleanser. I used to think that all facial cleansers and face wash was created equal, but it totally isn't. You know when you use a face wash and it leaves your skin tight? I used to think that, that was good. It's actually awful. It means it's stripping all of the oils from your skin. And what I like about the Vlasoma cleanser is that it is gentle enough to leave my skin as moisturized and ideally supple as it needs to be before I am putting on my facial products. And what's nice about it as well is that I feel like it's gentle enough to use both in the morning and the night. At night, I like it right before I go to bed, but in the morning, if I'm using a retinol product overnight or something that I know is quite harming if in the sun, I want to wash my face. And I find that the mild rice cleanser from Blasoma is the only thing that really gets the job done and allows me to continue feeling my best. If you want to check it out for yourself, you can use code ECOCHIC at Blasoma.com. That's B-L-I-S-S-O-M-A.com, code ECOCHIC. Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What? Like it's hard? Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz and it's so nice to have you here today. We have been on a roll. I feel like we've had such good episodes back to back to back. Last week, we had a call-in episode. We talked about culture and sustainability, what it looked like growing up for families outside of whitewashed mainstream media, which was a really awesome conversation. We talked the week before with Julia Jackson of Grounded.org about climate solutions and why we're not acting on the solutions we already have. And the week before that, we were joined by Aaron Brockovich, super iconic, so all around an excellent little roster of episodes to catch up on if you are new around here or returning. And this week we are joined by the renowned Dr. Renee Lertzman. I am incredibly excited about today's episode because I think that the topic of climate anxiety and climate psychology in general is probably the most requested topic I've received in the last two and a half years that I've been hosting this show. I think that climate anxiety is a topic that a lot of people acknowledge feeling, and they acknowledge it within themselves and within their friend groups saying, do you feel overwhelmed sometimes by this movement? Do you feel like we're just not doing enough and we're not getting anywhere and et cetera, et cetera? And I think that there's a lot of value in validating those feelings. I have felt the same way for a really long time. I get climate anxiety, and I know a lot of y'all do, and for that reason, It's been highly requested that we bring on an expert to speak on climate anxiety. And I have to say that this was a guest that I was looking for for a really long time. I think that I've always been interested in psychology and the psychology of environmentalism and not only bringing people into the movement, but what to do when you're already in the movement. And climate psychology is an incredibly specialized field. And I think a lot of the trouble I found also was just the validation of climate anxiety. I found a lot of people online and in these forums or on articles or thought pieces just saying, yes, I experience climate anxiety. But it took a little while to find someone who could speak on climate psychology from a very educated 
point of view, from a research-backed point of view and from an actionable point of view, not just saying, I experience climate anxiety, but it's like, why do you feel this way? Why are these feelings valid? What do we do about it? And how do we not let this anxiety really riddle our lives? And that's when I came across Dr. Renee Lertzman's TED Talk. I will go ahead and link it in the show notes because I highly encourage you check it out. It's less than 15 minutes titled How to Turn Climate Anxiety into Action. And I have to say that when I saw this TED Talk, I felt so validated. I think that there's a lot of smoke and mirrors and perhaps a lot of downplaying our feelings in the climate movement. And I'll go ahead and say that I'm a very logical person. I don't really rule a lot of my decisions with emotions and the emotional attachment I have to doing the right thing or caring about animals and the planet and whatever else it may be. Not that that's like any better or worse than going about things with an emotional, rational mindset, but I think that it's been difficult for me as an individual to say the feelings that I have are valid. It's okay to be overwhelmed and nervous and concerned about the state of our planet. And sometimes self-care is really undervalued in environmentalism and in the environmental movement. I think that there's a lot of big time topics when we're talking about climate change, the most serious existential threat to humankind as we know it. There's a lot of big time topics and there's really not a whole lot of emphasis on mindfulness, on relaxing, on taking a minute to just step back, take care of yourself and come back refreshed to the movement. So that was all a big runaround about how I came to terms with my own climate anxiety. And as I began searching deeper and deeper into resources, I kept coming across articles and notes and, like I said, this TED Talk. And then I realized that a lot of the articles, a lot of the thought pieces were products from Dr. Renee Lertzman or her teachings, at least people who have been influenced by her and her thoughts and her teachings. So I am incredibly excited to welcome Dr. Renee Lertzman to the show. Like I mentioned, I am so incredibly thankful for her work and I have been personally impacted by a lot of her teachings and how her teachings have really impacted others and really expanded the climate psychology space. Dr. Renee Lertzman is a renowned psychologist, author, and sustainability strategist who uses psychological insights to change our approach to environmental crises. She applies her training from social psychology as a researcher specializing in deep human insights, and she creates these frameworks and methods that empower people to take action. She works with companies, nonprofits, governments looking to strengthen climate and sustainability initiatives, develop more effective strategies, and harness creativity and innovation needed to solve big problems. Also, awesome timing this week is the release of Project Inside Out. Renee is the founder of Project Inside Out, which is a unique resource hub that brings together activists with clinical psychologists who drive sustainable behavior, changing our planet. Project Inside Out offers a new approach for engaging communities about climate and sustainability issues that is grounded in clinical insights from psychology, cognitive science, neurobiology, and social psych research. I'm really excited about this particular research hub because Renee and I do speak a little bit about frameworks today and the value of understanding not only your place in the climate movement, but how your place and your feelings and your thoughts about climate change and environmental issues really impact those around you. So I'm incredibly excited for y'all to check out Project Inside Out. I find that it is an awesome, awesome source for research, for frameworks, for just better understanding yourself and your role in this bigger movement. 
Renee is also regularly commissioned to teach, present, and produce research for a range of institutions, so the World Wildlife Fund, the White House, National Center for Atmospheric Research, NOAA, Columbia University, even more. She is an experienced journalist, and her perspectives and publications have appeared in Sun Magazine, Pacific Standard, CNN, Rolling Stone, NPR, Climate Access, Sustainable Brands. She has an awesome TED Talk, like I mentioned, all around incredibly insightful and very accessible. Renee received her MA from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I got my undergrad in environmental communications, and she has a PhD in social sciences from Cardiff University in the United Kingdom. Renee has developed and taught the first course on the psychology of environmental education and communications, which we do speak about a little bit in this conversation, and she's continued to design and teach courses on the psychology of climate change since 2001. She's convened symposiums, she's a founding member of the Climate Psychology Alliance, all around an incredibly impressive, pioneering voice. And like I mentioned, I could not be more honored to welcome Dr. Renee Lertzman to the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Helps me out a lot, and I always really appreciate it. Share it with a friend. I think this is a really, really good episode to share with a friend, especially right now, given the debates and given our election season. If you're in the U.S., I think that there has been a pretty impressive number of conversations around climate. I won't say that they're all productive, but I think that there's a lot of discussion. People are realizing that natural disasters are happening, and it's really traumatic sometimes. So I think this is a great episode to share with a friend if you're so inclined. You can follow along on social media at Eco Chic Podcast. If you are so inclined to email me, get in touch, etc. All of my links are always in the show notes. And with that, thank you so much for tuning in. And I'm excited to share today's episode with Dr. Renee Lertzman on climate anxiety, how to deal, how to recognize it, and how to take that anxiety and really allow it to fuel your compassionate action in this movement. Hope you enjoy. Dr. Lertzman, thank you so much for joining me today. I am incredibly excited to have this conversation with you today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here with you. I am interested in jumping right into the topic of climate anxiety and climate trauma, but I think it would be really helpful to first know how you found this niche because climate anxiety, climate trauma, climate psychology in general is incredibly specialized and you are so renowned in your field because you've really been a pioneer in the movement. So how did you fall into this space? Right. That's a really good question. And I love your phrase, fall, (laughs) fall into it because that's kind of how it felt. So this goes back to when I was a freshman in college. I was at UC Santa Cruz. I was very much focused on becoming a psychologist, which I felt that I would be throughout my childhood. And I got there and, you know, like a lot of students, I signed up for a bunch of different classes and I signed up for an environmental studies class in combination with psychology and you know anthropology and, you know, lots of other courses. And the experience I had was like, I had just been sort of dropped into a very deep well of trauma. And there were a few things going on. One is I was learning about big, big issues, like big existential issues, whether it was a lecture about deforestation or whether it was a lecture about species loss or whether it was about toxins and their air and the water, whether it was about climate change and drought, you name it, that class was a, a litany of really heavy stuff. 
And what I noticed is that one, that was not being acknowledged. So there was a complete disconnect between what we were learning about and the emotional impact of that and the fact that this is actually really distressing. There was no acknowledgement from anyone, you know, at the time, it, it just wasn't being named like, wow, this is heavy. This is, you might be feeling really overwhelmed, like take care of yourselves as you leave the class. You know, there was nothing like that. And so it felt like we were just sort of on our own. And then I noticed that at the time, no one was really talking about it generally. You know, no one was really saying like, I'm pretty freaked out, you know, and I'm feeling really anxious. There wasn't really a conversation about that. People were undoubtedly feeling it privately, but not talking about it. And then there was the added piece of my experience going between that environmental studies class and my psychology classes. And no one was talking in those psychology classes about what's actually going on with the planet, which we all live on and we're deeply a part of. So as if it was just kind of like this whole other realm. And meanwhile, the psychology classes were only about humans. They were only about social psychology and attitudes and, you know, all that kind of classic. I was in an amazing kind of introduction to social psychology. And those two things combined, the psych, the environment combination, led me to have a very visceral, very direct experience that something is missing and that this missing piece is actually a really key missing piece of the whole picture, which is, you know, that for us to actually process information and for us to make sense of what's going on in the world, and this includes any kind of traumatic content, whether it's racial injustice, inequity, misogyny, you know, like you name it, just any kind of trauma in the world. It takes a lot to process that, right? And it takes us kind of having to reorganize ourselves and kind of really come to terms with what this really means for me, what this means for you, what this means for us. And so that whole thing about how do I engage with this was missing. And what I saw is that what it was leading to was the unintended impact of anyone working on climate change and the environment, which is that people were tuning out, people were disconnected. And that's where, you know, I started to think a lot about apathy. Like, well, what is apathy really? Because I just don't buy it. Like, I don't, I have not yet a single human being over 30 years who's genuinely apathetic about our world, right? Like, that's, I, I just became very curious. Like, what is really going on here? And I started to see this connection between, okay, we're not talking about it. We're not naming it. We're not actually acknowledging anxiety and grief and trauma and loss because we're freaked out. and We don't want to go there. It seems too heavy. And then we're also seeing people just completely not engaged. And so that's what led me to really chart this path. And this was in the late 1980s at the time. And so it's been quite an evolution of the field and there's been more and more research and work in the space, thankfully. And now we've seen it just completely accelerate, which is evidenced by us even having this conversation and you inviting me to be in this dialogue with you about climate anxiety. It's just, it's just evidence that it's now finally like right there and we're talking about it. I love to hear the trajectory of your career. I think it's so interesting that you were in college and you saw this this void, quite frankly, this void of intersectional discussion between these two fields. And now it's something that is so demanded that we acknowledge that 
humans are experiencing climate anxiety, that these are two very large conversations in our society that are just not being connected often enough. And I think the work that you're doing is so incredibly important. And I want to talk to you a little bit about how you're able to bring this higher level understanding of the human experience to organizations. Because I think that it's one thing to work with an individual one-on-one with their anxiety. And I would love to chat with you a little bit about perhaps some tips that you have for people out there. But I think that something that's so interesting to me about your work is that you're able to present this very sometimes new concept to a lot of people, this concept that climate anxiety is real and that it exists. You're able to present it to huge organizations. You've worked with the White House and the World Wildlife Fund and all of these big time organizations that are able to first acknowledge what they're doing and have an impact on the masses. So that's kind of a runaround. I'm just curious to know, how is it that you go about having these conversations on a really large scale? Just first introducing people to this work that you do and, and encouraging them to do something about it and be aware. Mm-hmm. Right. I feel very strongly about the fact that what we're talking about and bringing in a more emotional intelligence, sort of psychologically oriented approach is absolutely work that can be done in a very practical way and at scale and doesn't necessarily look anything like what we might think as far as therapy or, you know, emotional processing, whatever. So it's been very, very important to me to bring this work into organizational contexts that are really, really about meeting people where they are and to look at all the different things that organizations are currently doing to engage and communicate with whether it's internally, you know, whether it's employees or stakeholders internal to an organization, uh, a board, or whether it's outside of the organization, whether that's consumers, whether that's members, depending on the kind of organization it is. And we look at the work that's being done through the lens of are we actually taking into account the emotional and the experiential aspect of what it is we're talking about. So um, in the case of sustainability and climate change and carbon-related efforts, let's say, we start by looking at, and and this is something I call the three A's, which is um, a framework that I developed as I started becoming more and more of a consultant. And the three A's are anxiety, ambivalence, and aspiration. And there's a whole story about that, which I can tell you about in a minute, how I came to the three A's. But basically, we use those three A's as a lens and a filter. And we start with, okay, let's take, you know, what is it that you're working on that you feel is like really important and super exciting and like you really want to get everyone on board with, like whatever that is, whether it's clean cosmetics or whether it's fashion related or whether it's electric vehicles or eating less meat, how we change the way we get around, whatever that is, cycling. We think it's really awesome. We want to get others on board. And we look at that through the lens of, okay, like what might be some anxieties that come up for people about those things? Because I'm going to tell you that when we talk about solutions and we talk about positive things, it's also hitched to the bigger picture of climate change and biodiversity crisis, which is really heavy and distressing for people. And we want to somehow like, we, we, we almost act like that's not the case, but in actuality, you know, when we talk about something really exciting and positive, there's often for a lot of people an indirect association, which is a reminder that we're in trouble and we need to change. 
So there's that. And then there's the actual lifestyle or consumption changes we're talking about with the clothes we buy or the cosmetics or the how we get around that often do bring up anxieties for people. Like I don't want to have to let go of driving around all the time or, you know, I like my cheap clothes at H&M or whatever, but um, it's very, very important for us to tune into to, to that level because then we become more attuned and more capable of actually connecting with the people we're wanting to connect with. So there's the anxiety. The ambivalence is the second one. Ambivalence is really, really important because with any kind of change, we often have ambivalence. And ambivalence is just where we feel really torn where we feel pulled in different directions. And it's a terminology that I have taken from the field of clinical psychology and from public health, where anyone who works in those sectors understands human ambivalence, you know, that there's resistance to change. And so it's very important for us to look at with as much compassion as possible where people are feeling conflict. Like, well, I'm kind of into it. I'm like, Part of me is on board, but another part of me is like, what, I, you know, I don't know what people are going to think about me or what would my partner think, or, you know, let's say I want to become vegan. Like, what does this mean for how I relate with my family? Who's very meat oriented, like all that stuff comes up and that's ambivalence. That's like natural and normal dilemmas that we are all wrestling with. And one thing we know about ambivalence is that you have to engage with it. You can't just skip it. You have to actually get people talking about their ambivalence and getting it out in the open. Cause it's, it's really quite profound. If I were to ask you, well, Laura, tell me about your relationship with air travel. Chances are, you're going to tell me a very ambivalent story, right? You're going to say, well, I don't really want to have to fly. It's like really messed up, but I want to travel, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. And on the topic of ambivalence, would that kind of be where climate guilt would come in? Like sometimes you feel guilty because you did eat a meat product one time when you were out or because I I did have to fly this one time or this kind of reminder. And I'm like, oh, am I really as helpful or environmental as I think I am if I participated in that activity? Exactly. So the guilt, right? The guilt response is often what comes as a result of our ambivalence. So guilt is, I think, a really important and complex topic in all of this. Basically, there's, you know, I have some colleagues who are amazing climate psychologists who would say, well, actually, guilt is not such a bad thing, but, you know, there's healthy kinds of guilt because it can motivate us and drive us to make some changes. But for the whole, on the whole, guilt is not constructive, right? It actually takes us into a hole and it, and we can just get kind of stuck there. I mean, it's just like so unproductive in so many ways, but there's something about guilt, which if it's, if it's approached from a slightly different angle, we can see it as ideally more of a sense of remorse or accountability, responsibility, like, uh, you know, yes, like that twinge that ideally, ideally we relate with those feelings as, ah, I'm not in alignment. Like there's something here where I'm not in alignment with my higher self. And ideally having as much compassion for that as possible, as opposed to beratement and like, oh, I suck, you know, I shouldn't have done that. But, you know, the the big takeaway I would say from all of this is that we've got to be able to approach our experience and our relationship with these issues with as much compassion and curiosity as possible. Because that's the only way we're going to get out of this rut of like, oh, the shame and the guilt and the paralysis and the overwhelm and 
you know, all of that, that's all, those are natural feelings to have, but our attitude towards our own experience is actually like absolutely essential that we get right, which is, okay, you know, I'm feeling guilt or I'm feeling bad that I went and did that. I just made this big commitment, just made a pledge, you know, I'm going to like not have meat for a while or whatever that is. And then we go off these commitments and we go off the pledges and then we, we let us take us down. And it's so important to bring us back into like with as much compassion as possible. Like this is hard, like this is hard stuff. Right. And I make sense and how I'm handling this makes sense. And just get off your own back and let yourself be imperfect and know that you are on the right path and the right trajectory. You know, so the way we relate with our experience is really important. Just so I can round out the three A's. So we've got anxiety, we have ambivalence, and we have aspiration. And so I, I do think it's very important to stay connected with what are our deepest aspirations and to encourage people working in organizations to obviously address that. But we've got to also be able to really acknowledge those other A's. We have to be able to explicitly speak to and acknowledge the anxieties and the ambivalence as well as the aspiration, or we just come across as being tone deaf cheerleaders and moralizers and we alienate everyone. So it's like, it's so vitally important that we start to look at the work we do through, through this lens. And, and then there's lots of other ways I work with organizations, but you know, it's, it's usually applying a sort of filter or a framework to bring us into more direct contact with what is our own experience and how are we relating and wrestling with these issues and then recognizing that that will inform how we show up in the work we're doing internally or externally facing. It's interesting that you say internally or externally facing because when I think externally facing for me as an individual I think of perhaps the climate activism I have in my circles with my friends, with my family, and I'm saying, okay, today we're all going to go meat-free or we're all going to go plastic-free or whatever else it may be that I'm advocating for. And you mentioned something that I thought was really important in this this shaming, that you don't want to be shaming yourself and you don't want to be just absorbing all the negativity of that climate guilt, but you also don't want to be bringing it on to other people. So I feel like sometimes a hard thing going down the environmental rabbit hole, so to speak, is how your progress through the movement is affecting the people around you. Right, exactly. There's no way around it. How we relate, again, with our own experience and our own journey is going to influence and inform how we do our work in the world, right? I mentioned this earlier, I think, maybe not. Um, So Project Inside Out is this new... Yeah, let's talk about it. So Project Inside Out is actually a design to guide people on somewhat of a journey. And the the premise of it is that if you want to be a change maker in the world, we do need to start with ourselves. And it doesn't mean we stay there and hang out there, you know, forever. But we, we have to recognize that it's an inside, outside job, right? It's like, so just as an example, if I myself am incredibly harsh and critical towards myself and that I feel like no matter what I do, it's not enough and I suck because I'm still flying or I'm still doing these things that I know are not okay, 
if I feel that way, you better believe I'm going to bring that quality and that mood and that attitude to others. Even though I'm not conscious of it and I don't want to be, I will. Because, I mean, we're only as effective out in the world as we are in our own selves, if that makes sense. And so it's not like about perfection. Everyone is on this journey and it's all a work in progress. Absolutely. I just want to make that very clear. But one of the most powerful things we can do is to start with checking in and tuning into ourselves. So if you go to the Project Inside Out website, it starts with what kind of change maker are you? And there's this cool um, interactive tool. It's almost like a game where it's like, well, where are you at in the spectrum of, are you tend to be more of a cheerleader where you're all like, rah, rah, like positivity? Are you more of an educator where you're really into the, the information and the data and, and like you're a scholar and you're just like that really excites you and you want to share with people all the knowledge you have? Or are you someone who's really driven by the moral, like the moral imperative, like this is the right thing to do. And if you care, you're going to do the right thing. And that's what we call a writer, R-A-G-H-T, the writer. The other way of showing up is, are you a guide? And a guide is really what Project Inside Out is all about because it's, it's recognizing that given the nature of the work we're doing and it's all about change, like deep transformative change, we need to look at what actually works. And what works is when we feel guided. You know, So if I'm guiding you, it's a very different quality or you're guiding me, then if I'm coming to you and saying, okay, I need to convince you. Imagine we started off this whole conversation and I was secretly feeling like I've got to convince you by the end of this conversation that psychology is super important and like we need to make change fast. Like it would be a very different interaction and you would probably feel like I was trying to pitch or persuade you of something. So it's a very different situation. And so the Project Inside Out kind of journey guides people through like, where am I in this? And then there's, there's some various kind of tools and resources. Um, we have these five guiding principles that were developed that I'm very, very excited about, which can serve as a, as a framework for no matter who you are, if you want to be a change maker in the world, you can use these guiding principles to guide you. And basically the guiding, they're all based on evidence-based research, you know, and psychology and public health and behavior change. Basically they are start with a tune. So attuning to yourself and attuning to the people that you want to be working with and bringing along on the journey with you. There's reveal and reveal is about how we can be compassionate storytellers like tell your story and share your information but in a really compassionate and emotionally intelligent way and be vulnerable and be real and be authentic the third is equip which is kind of a radical reframe of it's actually up to us to equip others to have the tools and resources they need to be effective and successful in their lives and their work convene is the fourth guiding principle which is recognizing that when people have the opportunity to convene to have small group, especially small group conversations, any kind of conversation that's, that's where we're talking about our real feelings and in a safe way is absolutely transformative. And we need each other. This is absolutely about connecting and joining up with, you know, groups and collectives and sustain. And sustain is really about 
how do we keep going for the long haul? And sustain is also about beyond the pledge and beyond the commitment. And, you know, because that's a common thing that's used in this space is take, make the pledge, you know, I'm going to pledge to go meet free every Monday or whatever it is. And then we're human and we go off the pledge. And so I just feel like, let's just be real and name that and figure out how can we actually create support mechanisms that keep us going for the long haul. You know, like I'm very inspired by the 12 step movement and some 12 step programs have buddy system. You know, they, they talk a lot about making calls and you know program calls and it's like building in accountability for ourselves, like having buddies, having friends, having allies that we stay connected to beyond the big event or the push or whatever. I think it's interesting that you compare guiding to the educational portion of just getting into the climate movement. I think that it's pretty natural. I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, you're the expert here. But I think it's natural for a lot of people that when they get anxious or they learn about the climate emergency they want to educate other people on it and they want to talk about it and they want to bring people along. And I, I know that you taught a course on the psychology of environmental education and communications, I believe. And I thought what was so interesting about even just that course title was saying that there's a way to bring people into your experience and into the movement and into just acknowledging the climate crisis that is welcoming and inviting and allows you to be a guide and, and serve these people in the way that is best for them to be educated and inspired and take what they need from it. So I'd also love to hear a little bit from you about that allyship portion that you just touched on and just what does it mean to be a good ally in the climate movement? Mm-hmm. So yes, that for most people who get activated and awakened to what's happening on the planet, that it's very understandable that we want to enlighten and inform and educate others. And I'm not suggesting we don't do that. I'm talking about how we do it. It's not if we do it, but how we do it. And how do we take all that we know and want to offer and offer it? Like, how can it truly be an offering, which is something I've learned from my mentors in motivational interviewing, which is a an approach that's used widely in the public health sector where you've got clinicians and experts working in the health sector who have a lot to say and have a lot to educate their patients or you know who they're working with. And they're learning the hard way over many years that you can come in and say to someone like, you know, if you don't quit doing this, you're going to, did you realize that every time you, you know, eat that, this is what happens? And did you know that when you smoke or when you whatever it is that this happens and then people are just completely shutting them down. But when it's reframed as, you know, I honor you and I respect you and I believe that you have incredible insight and wisdom in you and I am a partner with you and I'm going to offer, if you're open to it, would you be open to hearing about what I've just learned about the fashion industry? Because it's completely rocked my world and I'm so impacted that I feel really strongly that other people need to know, but are you open to that? Like, what do you think? You know, it's like, it's basically an, a, a spirit of offering as opposed to pushing and kind of bulldozing people over with, because that's more about us. That's like more about our anxiety. 
It's like, I have all this anxiety I have to do something with, and I'm going to just channel it in your direction. And now I feel better, but the other person is left feeling completely flattened and overwhelmed, which is not what we want. So it's about using skillful means to educate and inform and, and engage people. That's really what that's about. How do you make sure that you're being a good climate ally? Because you don't want to necessarily project your anxiety onto someone else, but you also want to make sure that you are doing the right thing and being a guide and being as supportive as you can for your community. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I would say how to be a good ally is that you want to be as human and vulnerable and transparent as you can which is to say, I don't have all the answers. I'm here along the path with you. We're on this together. So there's that ability to be yourself, to be honest as much as you can, which then gives other people permission to be honest and messy and complicated and imperfect and all of that. And those are the conditions that we really need to be cultivating right now, which are basically what I would call safe spaces. And so to me, allyship is about how do we create safe, uh, the other term I like is containers or containment. How do we create safe spaces relationally? So even if it's not like literally you're sitting in a room together or on a Zoom or whatever, but how do we in our allyship give each other permission to be safe? And that means that you own your own stuff, you take accountability for your own actions, that you, you exercise you know, mindfulness around when you might be moving into more of a critical or bossy or pushy mode, just to practice being more mindful about that and being able to notice when that might be happening. And the really important piece of, of all of this is self-management, so self-regulation. And self-regulation is a term that's used in neuroscience I have a colleague named Sarah Payton. Um, she wrote a book called Your Resonant Self, and she has a new book coming out, and she's an advisor with Project Inside Out, and she'll be at the summit next week. She talks a lot about practices that we can use throughout the day. I mean, now it's very popular, right? Like mindfulness practices or whatever you can do to bring yourself back into regulation because you need to be regulated and resourced in order to really be of much value or service to anyone else. And these are very triggering issues and topics. And so a lot of us are not regulated. We were dysregulated, including myself. Like I go in and out of feeling regulated all the time. I might hear something on the radio or on the TV or come across something in a feed that's very triggering and I will lose my center. You know, I've heard a terminology used with some of my corporate clients, which I love, which is I become emotionally hijacked. And so now I have that language so I can be like, okay, I'm emotionally hijacked. So how do I bring myself back? So that's how you be a good ally is that you, you can practice staying grounded and as much as we can and offer to others a safe refuge to be ourselves with as we work through, you know, plotting the way through this crisis. Wow. Well, thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. You know, we started talking about climate anxiety at the very, very beginning of the conversation. And, and I think it's really important that people recognize that if you're feeling anxious, 
if you're feeling whatever you're feeling, angry or sad, or maybe you're also feeling inspired. Maybe you're feeling really motivated. And some people are just so energized by a big, hard problem. And they're just like, give it to me. We're going to do this. And you know, whatever, wherever you are in, in any of that, I think it's very, very important to honor and have compassion for what our experience is. And that paradoxically allows us to have a lot more energy and a lot more capacity than we otherwise would. There's a phrase that psychologist named Carl Rogers said years ago, which is, he called it the paradox of change. The paradox of change is that when we accept ourselves and our experience for who we are and what we're feeling, the paradox is that then we're far more able to change. <laughs> um, so it's the paradox is that if I can say, oh my gosh, I'm feeling so anxious right now. Like I am having so much anxiety about climate change. I can hardly handle it. I just can barely handle it. It's starting to affect my life. I'm starting to feel like maybe I'm getting kind of fixated on it or whatever. It's very, very important to just bring in that attitude of, okay, like that's where I'm at and that's where I'm at and that's what makes sense. And these are very intense issues and there's nothing wrong with me. You know, that in itself just soothes our nervous system and then allows us to go into like, okay, and now what can I do? Now, who can I talk to? Who can I work with? What organizations can I join up with? Like, how do I channel my anxiety into action? And not by pushing myself, but how to like literally take that energy and say, okay, this is a massive signal. The anxiety is a feedback that I care deeply about the planet and I'm alive and I'm part of the web of life, which we all are. So it's like, okay, there's that. Now, how do I direct that in a way that makes most sense for me you know, in terms of who I am and where I am and what I'm capable of. And if I super overwhelmed and I'm juggling a bunch of stuff, then that's okay. Like what makes sense for me? And it's not about like laying a big trip on ourselves. You know, it's about what makes sense for me, what's right-sized for me, what will support me in feeling more in alignment with my higher purpose and my higher self. And who can I do that with? Who can I join up with? Who can I reach out to? Who can I connect with? Who can I partner with, collaborate with? It's got to go from the me to the we. But it's, again, it's just like, as I started out saying, it's very important to start with that, our connection with ourselves first and bringing a lot of empathy and compassion to our own experience. And then you'll just find it's like, it'll happen that we can then naturally, as humans, we then start to go into, because we're such amazing problem solvers, we're just like, okay, now what do I do? That's so powerful. And that reminds me of what you said earlier when I asked about guilt and you said, guilt is not necessarily bad, it's quite normal. The problem really comes in in what you do with that guilt and the choice that you have, if that guilt's gonna weigh you down or motivate you to make some sort of compassionate change for how you want to live moving forward. And I loved what you said about going from the me to the we, because I think there's a lot of conversation in the climate space around, we have to go from, it's not about individual action, it's the corporations, it's the governments, it's this, that, and the other. And, and I think, you know, that's absolutely correct, but it's saying that collective action does make a difference in just being able to educate your friends and be an ally to those that are perhaps 
climate curious, if we want to call it that, and and being there for yourself in those moments of climate anxiety. I think that's really important. I mean, I get that way all the time. You know, sometimes it feels like you're speaking into a void and no one is nearly as concerned as you are. And um, exactly, which is a very, it's a very lonely, very alienating experience to have really is. I think those are, it's just normal. It's kind of part of the territory. Um, You know, that's one of the things I've learned from working with different psychotherapists over the years is a good psychotherapist will say, you know, there's going to be times it's going to feel really hard and you're going to want to give up. And there's going to be other times you're feeling like you're having this big breakthrough and, you know, they, they orient you to the journey and then you can kind of relax because then you're like, okay, it's going to be hard at times. And so then you don't get thrown off by every single time you go through a dark night of the soul because you've at least been, someone has sort of reminded you from the sidelines, like, hey, you know, this isn't going to last. You're going to get through it. Um, and we can be doing that with ourselves and, and with each other. Wow. Well, thank you so much for that. I thank you. Wow. So much. I feel like so light almost, if that's the word, do you ever hear that, that you just like make people feel good? I think that not only in your information, but in your delivery, I feel like, I feel like I get it now. Like I understand mm-hmm. why I feel the way I feel. And I understand why people collectively have this experience of loneliness, mm-hmm. which is kind of, I mean, collective loneliness is a little, a little bit of an oxymoron, but it's common, I guess, you know, it's, it's 2020. So. Exactly. Well, I think what you might be experiencing is re- is the relief yeah. that comes when we know that what we're experiencing is normal. And when we also have some context and perspective, all of that is like stabilizes our system. Yeah. yeah. So thank, thank you for that. I really appreciate it and enjoyed talking with you. Thank you again so, so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Like I mentioned, for me, it was incredibly insightful and very comforting. I just enjoyed it so thoroughly. It left me with a bit of a brighter outlook on my work. I think that it's quite easy to feel bogged down by the climate crisis, especially when you live and breathe it like I do. And if you are new to the movement, it's very easy to feel overwhelmed with the amount of information that is out there. It's easy to feel overwhelmed with the amount of action that we need to take. So I hope today's episode allowed some insights for you. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I mentioned, I think it's a really good one to share with a friend. I think a lot of people experience these feelings and don't know how to communicate them. So I encourage you to do that. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts if you have made it this far. Make sure you're subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Eco Chic. And with that, I would love to hear your thoughts on social media. I'm at Eco Chic Podcast wherever you want to connect. Thanks again so, so much for tuning in to this week's episode, and I'll speak with you next week. Bye.